Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Gianna Malillo, Assistant Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Ten months into the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic, some states continue to struggle to keep up with new cases and protect their most vulnerable populations from bearing the brunt of the disease. However, one state was able to get ahead of the pandemic early on and, through public-private partnerships, secured immediate care for hundreds of the highest-risk individuals within weeks. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Susan Monty, MD, the Chief Population Officer for LifeBridge Health, and Trenner Williams, MD, the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Socially Determined. Together, Dr. Mani and Dr. Williams lay out how Maryland's COVID-19 Task Force on Vulnerable Populations was able to leverage data on social determinants of health and analytics to rapidly pinpoint populations most at risk of severe COVID-19 complications and optimize preventive and treatment measures. To get started, the impacts of social determinants of health have been widely reported on for years, but the COVID-19 pandemic really brought these barriers to healthcare to the forefront of the national conversation. In Maryland, in particular, the Task Force on Vulnerable Populations for COVID-19 was able to leverage these determinants with other data and ultimately target preventive measures to the state's most vulnerable counties. How did this task force achieve this feat and which institutions were involved in rolling out the plan? Um, back in early spring, when we all recognized, as you mentioned, that the um, that COVID-19 would have a disproportionate impact on our vulnerable populations, uh, a number of us had um, raised concerns from health systems and local coalitions of how we were going to think about this at a statewide level, especially when we were thinking about the kind of tactics and resources that would be needed for this kind of outreach. So um, I had reached out at that time to the Maryland Department of Health, and um, they were working very closely with the governor and their task force around COVID-19 planning. And they recommended a specific task force focused on our vulnerable populations and to bring together a public-private coalition of different groups and stakeholders across the state who were really used to thinking about the needs and the unique needs around our vulnerable populations and to harness that energy uh, around problem solving uh, around this group. So I took on that lead uh, along with the Maryland Department of Health. And one of the first things as we brought groups together was we recognized that we needed a data-driven approach to really think about how do we identify those who are most vulnerable amongst all of our vulnerable populations for having severe outcomes from COVID so that we could then think about what were the targeted resources that were needed. And then um, uh, one of the very first things that actually I did after that was say, who could we bring onto the table and be part of our task force to help us do this extremely important task? And uh, I knew Trenner from Socially Determined from some work we were doing together at LifeBridge around exactly these kind of things, thinking about social determinants of health. And he and his team seemed the perfect fit uh, to help us achieve that. Susan, I think that you characterized the beginning really well. Our business is around quantifying social risk, both at a community level and at a person level. Prior to, to Susan's call, we're really fortunate. Our data science team had developed a specific risk metric around COVID-19 and susceptibility 
we that followed um, our historical work where we've been able to quantify risk related to food insecurity, housing instability, financial strain, health literacy risk. So adding COVID risk uh, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic for us made a whole lot of sense. And frankly, when we when Susan called and the opportunity to look at um, the entire state of Maryland, all Medicaid and all Medicare patients, and be able to utilize, as Susan said, that data-driven approach to identify both those communities and those individuals at the highest risk seemed to be a perfect fit uh, for our data science, uh, the analytics and the insights that we produce and the team that we have. So we were uh, felt very privileged to be able to participate uh, in the work. What was the timeline for rolling out this task force? Um, warp speed would probably be the best way to think about how we did this. And I think Trenor uh, understands, we, we recognize that we had a very um, significant responsibility to our vulnerable population in the state. So um, we pretty much, uh, within the span of just about two weeks, got together all of the different stakeholders from public and private um, partnerships across uh, many different health agencies, leaders across the Maryland Department of Health and other health agencies. We got a number of different groups from a payer perspective as leaders, health system leaders, and private organizations that were also working uh, very much boots on the ground with our vulnerable populations. And in addition to Trenor and the team, we were also able to engage with our health information exchange leadership because as, as Trenor I'm sure we'll talk about shortly, that became very vital to our success in being able to disseminate this very important data throughout the entire state to different stakeholders. And uh, Trenor and the team, I give them a great deal of credit. You know, we, as a stakeholder group, we worked very quickly in the space of just a few days to say what were important elements that we needed from a data perspective, where, how could we aggregate some of that data across different um, state groups that might have uh, information, but to now bring it together for Trenor and his team so that we can start to think about identification of our vulnerable population and within our vulnerable population also think about risk stratification. That was very important from our stakeholder group to say we, ca we can't just think about risk as a one sort of set bubble. We really need to be able to risk stratify so that we can then disseminate this information at a neighborhood level and then down to an individual level so that different stakeholders, whether they be payers, whether they be health systems, whether they be the health officers from our public health organizations, know how to take their resources so that we could become some of their parts. So I will tell you, Gianna, I've never ever seen anything like the incredible dedication of this group, um, really putting uh, time and effort, everyone was doing this um, seven days a week coming together. We would have meetings ad hoc and really it was every single day just to be able to do this. Uh, uh, incredible that something that probably in normal times, frankly would have taken two years to get accomplished was able to be done in two weeks. Just as part of that, I, I think we were fortunate to have what I would characterize as a running start for this work. Um, we had already, uh, and have for the country, mapped community risk below the neighborhood level. So for the state of Maryland, for every 200 to 400 meters, quantified social risk and risk exposure around food, housing, transportation, and COVID susceptibility. So when we 
um, worked early on with Susan and team and CRISP, that statewide HIE, the ability to incorporate the data on over two and a half million citizens uh, immediately geolocate, so map them specifically, exact address, and be able to layer in their risk, again, food and housing and COVID susceptibility. Because we had that running start, it's why we were able to do that in just a manner of days. Um, and because of, again, leadership at the top from Susan and the Department of Health, um, and the fact that you've got a statewide HIE who's as sophisticated as CRISP is, really important as part of that process to, to make it work as fast as it did. Going off of that, what were the main sources of data that you used for this project? Our metrics that we use in a standard way incorporate data public data sources from federal and state, including the state of Maryland data sources, um, and then have individual data elements, again, around food. But for COVID, think about disease burden, crowding, economic stress, infrastructure. So using publicly available data to characterize at that below that neighborhood level. Um, we ut utilize commercial data related to businesses and communities. So that was part of our standard data set anyway, had that data available. Then with CRISP, we were able to util utilize the Medicare claims data that they have, and specifically the roster of all Medicare and all Medicaid individuals with age, gender um, as part of that, as well as we looked at the World Health organization and CDC guidelines around 32 different diseases that increase the risk of COVID morbidity and mortality. And we were able to capture disease flags of presence of disease for each of those um, to be able to pull into the analysis about risk stratification. So how do you go from 2.6 million to exactly who I should act on? And then the last piece of data that became so important, as we think about the risk of COVID the risk of morbidity and mortality, we know that that risk increases related to social risk factors area, um, areas. And we know it also increases in areas like with congregate housing and whether that's senior living housing um, that we know across the country has been problematic or in areas like homeless shelters uh, where we have congregate living as well. And so we were able to get direct um, feeds from the state and different departments and identifying some of those areas, whether again, it's senior living facilities or homeless shelters, assisted living facilities across the state of Maryland, which was hugely helpful as we looked at, again, the areas of highest risk. Trenor, I, I have to agree. You know, I, I think Gianna, what was extremely helpful in this was again, this public-private partnership. So as Trenor mentioned, they had an extremely strong and robust framework already in terms of data sources. And I think having so many different stakeholders at the table allowed us to finesse and add on additional layers, which was extremely important when it came down to uh, disseminating this information to stakeholders. So for example, as Trenor mentioned, one of the areas that we recognized uh, was a greater risk was around our homeless population. One of our important stakeholders at the task force was the statewide agency that actually oversees a number of our 
our work that happens at a local level in each of the counties in Maryland for our homeless population. So they had very granular data around the homeless population in terms of locations, et cetera, that Trenor and the team were then able to incorporate into their robust framework. So I, I think being able to have that framework that Trenor mentioned and adding on those additional layers from each of these stakeholders was extremely effective in the work that we ended up doing. Some states who have begun to tout the idea of implementing contact tracing have received pushback from citizens who may be wary of their personal data being used. Did either of you encounter any sort of opposition to this program? We did not. And we did recognize that that would be a concern. And because we were working very closely and through the auspices of the Maryland Department of Health and with CRISP, the, we had very important leaders at the table there who understood some of these kind of concerns and we were able to work through that as part of the, the data and the analysis so that we were mindful of some of those concerns as the data aggregation as well as the distribution of data was happening. Trenor, any thoughts from your end? Yeah, I was going to pick up on the distribution piece because I think that, and as you know, Susan and I are both physicians, um, I'm a family doc by background, and so I think a lot about that relationship that we as physicians have with our patients and how important that is. So as part of that distribution cycle, that included uh, physicians and practices where they had attributed lives, where they had Medicare lives, and so it was their patients, and they're getting a list, prioritized list, list of those individuals in their practice who are at the highest risk. And so that helped to mitigate, I think, some of those concerns from a, from a privacy standpoint as your provider or their, that practice reaching out to you. In addition, you've also got the health plans, whether it's the, the MCOs with Care First and other organizations who have a direct responsibility for their members. And so they also received that information about their highest risk members. So because I think you have some of those established clinical and management relationships in place, that helps to, I think, mitigate some of those, those risks. And I think that's what we found over time. So within the first 25 days of this program, over a thousand of the highest risk individuals were outreached directly that found a COVID positivity rate more than double the state average. Was that because these populations were previously looked over by testing outreach? Actually, I think that came about through some work from this data. As we were disseminating and distributing this data and working very closely with the Maryland Department of Health and their um, public health officials in the various counties and sharing it, what we recognized is uh, one of the ways that we looked at this data was actually to map out the different areas uh, with highest volume of at-risk populations. And as we talked to the public health officials, you know, in the different counties and we're sharing this data on a very visual basis and allowing them to really look at this information and process it, one of the things that came up because this was very early on with the pandemic is to really think about how do you outreach uh, to different community members you know many there were many um, testing sites that were being set up across the state but one of the practical logistic um, issues that had come up and was being voiced as a concern is what if people cannot make it for whatever reason to these sites they didn't have transportation for example or, you know, as people were, you know, trying to do outreach, how do we know how to get into those neighborhoods and really make sure that we were doing targeted outreach in the areas that were of greatest risk. 
So from that and, and from the insight of our public health officials and their lo local coalitions, what we recognized is how could we potentially as a state create a resource to go out into communities at risk and proactively think about doing at that time it was COVID screening um, and then also testing for our higher risk groups. So we actually worked with the public health officials in three of our counties that we knew had higher volumes of at-risk populations and vulnerable populations from our data. And uh, working with the state, we created what was called a manage and treat in place teams. And what that was, was a group of both EMS as well as social worker teams that were closely linked with the public health officials and their teams in those counties. And the groups would look at their data, identify those neighborhoods that both the public health officials and their teams also knew, some granular information, and then using the, the data that Trenner and the team also created, merging uh, both of those data sets to say, where are neighborhoods or locations that we need to go into, whether that be homeless shelters, whether that be elderly um, in congregate housing facilities, whether that be in certain residential neighborhoods that we know have a lot of socioeconomic uh, risk factors, for example, and these teams would actually go out and uh, be able to go into the neighborhoods door-to-door yeah, -door or into the buildings and, and because our public health officials um, knew boots on the ground, a lot of the different members of, of these different areas, we were able to create that relationship. So when the teams would come in, they would be able to offer COVID screening and then testing but also with the ability of having a social worker on the team would also be able to screen and help manage for resources for social determinants of health. Again, I think the value that we were able to significantly see with Trenner's data was incorporating that piece, which is often sometimes missing when we are thinking about COVID risk. So knowing that this, there are many groups that were vulnerable because of their socioeconomic needs, we were able to put those, those teams in place. And those teams worked seven days a week. And within about the first 25 days of doing this kind of work in those counties, as you mentioned, we were able to see a thousand high, high risk individuals. And I think unsurprisingly to us at that point, um, their positivity rate was um, higher because they were at higher risk and probably not having access to testing or, or going to those kind of tests for all those limitations that I mentioned. Maybe if I can just add on Gianna to, to that as, sort of the preliminary step so that you can empower those manage and treat in place teams and county health officials, it really starts with that idea of prioritization and risk stratification. Because it, it wasn't that whether it's providers or NCOs or county officials didn't want to, but you're talking about, again, millions of individuals across the state. So how do you, in a thoughtful, data-driven way, stratify that entire population, understand those at the greatest risk, and, and actually stack rank them from one to, to 2.6 million? And so that's what we did. So we were able to look at four primary factors, age, disease burden, um, and again, we use 32 different diseases from the CDC and the World Health Organization, specific COVID-19 susceptibility index, so our risk factor around there, and then additional, we looked at other social risk factor areas, three others, economics, housing, and food. And so we looked at all of those factors together. We took the 2.6 million people approximately, narrowed that, that down to the highest risk, 900,000 across the entire state, that still feels like too much. So we, we then went through one more filter and, and identified the highest risk across the state, 164,000 individuals by name 
in order, um, the next 258,000 of those individuals. And then that information enlists, again, identified information was sent to their providers, was sent to the health plans, the managed care organizations on the health plan side, was sent to um, the state and the local county officials. So now you've gone from this massive number of citizens and people across the state to an understanding at a person level who's at the highest risk so that when you start to deploy teams, because we all have limited time and resources and money, so you want to be as thoughtful, as informed, as disciplined as process um, as possible um, so that you can again, address those highest risk people in order. So we hope that, that that data allowed those organizations to be able to do that. Are there plans to expand the program in the upcoming months, either geographically or long-term? So the beauty of this kind of work that we did very early on is that it really helped, as Trenor mentioned, for folks to be able to see how could they restratify the different groups that they have attributed lives. So whether that be health systems, whether that be payers or the public health officials. And I think by doing that, it really allowed each group to think about what are the, the kind of tactics or resources that they would need to be able to do and work together, frankly, to kind of cover a geographic area in their unique way uh, to be greater than the sum of their parts. So this information um, has been distributed. This data was very widely disseminated uh, to all of those different groups, as Trenor mentioned, in the, in the, through CRISP um, and in different mechanisms that they are used to taking on. So what we are finding is health systems for their attributed lives. For example, in the state of Maryland, we work through a program called the Maryland Primary Care Program. So um, that actually allows for some embedded care management uh, resources. And so what we were finding was that health systems were taking a look at their uh, list and between their providers as well as their care managers, they were using that list to really make sure they were outreaching and prioritizing their highest risks. We know that this information, as Trenor mentioned, was also shared with payers so that they could do similar with their kind of outreach. And then of course, with our public health officials. So for that manage and treat uh, group, for example, we had started with a few counties and by doing that early on and really working with the public health officials, what we were finding is in the course of the pandemic, people were then being able to use that data as well as then uh, bringing on their, their resources within their counties to now add on for contact tracing or for other kind of outreach that was needed. So it really helped to create a very strong framework to help be, build on the chronic need around the pandemic. I think that's what we saw as a shift early on. What is really needed was this kind of data to kind of kickstart the prioritization and what kind of resources. And now we have sort of moved on to the, the chronic nature of the pandemic, knowing that this is now the new normal. What are the kind of resources that are needed into the months, if not potentially even years of this, to really make sure that we are meeting the needs of our, our vulnerable population? I might add uh, maybe two additional considerations that aren't yet uh, part of the plan, but just sort of where, as we have been working uh, on this challenge and around the pandemic over the last seven or eight months, um, one is we developed a social recovery index that looks at economic resiliency, resource availability, public policy, like local and statewide policy that has allowed us then to create 
some specific indices around housing vulnerability, opportunities, business resiliency, and thinking about the impact and what we hope doesn't happen but need to be prepared for, which is both a second wave and then just the impact of flu and the winter season on our populations and how we think about what that might do in terms of increasing risk around COVID. And so being able to potentially apply some of that same index around the same population and around the same communities, how might that help continue to drive resources and interventions, number one. The second consideration that I think across the country we're all thinking about, um, and certainly the same methodology that, that Susan led and that we used as part of this process may happen as we think about like vaccination, right? So at, when you think about limited resources over a period of time, using vulnerability of an individual or of a population allows you to stratify, right? And even sequence how you think about that process. So I'm not suggesting that that's what the state of Maryland yet is doing or in any way, if they did that we would be part of that. But I do think as you start to think about if you're able to characterize individual risk, um, again, using a combination of clinical and social factors that allows you to risk gratify entire populations and be able to sequence potentially like how you might deploy vaccines as part of that. What lessons can other states learn from Maryland's success and what advice would you give to those looking to form public-private partnerships to address these broad community needs? Sure. I think the pandemic really afforded a unique opportunity um, in a way that unfortunately um, to have a pandemic, um, I don't think any of us would certainly have wished that, but it gave us a kickstart to think about the importance of a collective impact strategy at a, at a large level. I think what we tend to see is at a local level, we have many local coalitions that have clearly recognized the importance of public-private partnerships, but this was really that on steroids. And the ability for different groups like this to come together and then uh, to use a data-driven approach to think about your strategy at that statewide level. So you really can harness the unique energy of each of these stakeholders in the public-private partnership area is a must. And I think that was an incredible learning experience for all of us. And it's something that we see even as the task force has evolved, um, has continued to, to grow. So very much a learning opportunity from that standpoint. I would add maybe just a, a couple of, of thoughts because I agree with everything that Susan said. Also in the, in the times of crisis, you're able to break down maybe historical barriers that existed um, and bring people together in a much more efficient and effective way. Um, I think the second learning as part of this is how, like one, the value of partners like CRISP at a state HIE who have access to the information, the ability to put both pull it and disseminate that information. So as other states are looking at, at their statewide HIEs, and that partnership and the level of investment that they make with those organizations, I think could be really valuable um, as we continue to move forward. The next piece is that this work specifically in identifying and addressing risk around COVID treatment, prevention, et cetera, has a lot of applicability in broader approaches for chronic disease in general, right? So how do we use a data-driven approach to understand the link between diabetes and heart failure and COPDs, so chronic diseases and social risk and leveraging, to Susan's point, 
all of the capabilities of multiple partners together so that the health plan doesn't only think of them as a member and the health system or provider that takes care of them thinks of that person as a patient and the local county health department just thinks of them as a citizen they're just a person right and how do we work together not just around addressing covid and the prevention they're in or the treatment of but there are other diseases and other um, issues that, again, may, be, may benefit from a collaborative approach. The governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, is a Republican, but both the state Senate and House of Delegates are majority Democrat. Have you found that this dichotomy impacted Maryland's pandemic response at all? Not at all. I think yeah. everyone really came together understanding that we all have an obligation towards all of our citizens and not, not an issue at all. Yeah, I, I can't. Gianna, like, I can't remember a single instance where anybody said, even Republican or Democrat, in the conversation. It just was never a part of the conversation and working together. Um, and I think that's so important. And like, it was, it was such again a higher mission around providing the best solutions for the citizens of Maryland. Um, period. Thank you both very much for taking time to speak with us. Thank you, Gianna, for the opportunity. Yeah, I appreciate it, Gianna. Thank you so much. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.